The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good afternoon. How are you, Mars Hill? My name is Kyle. I am new here. I haven't seen a lot of you in a while. Uh, it's been a while since uh, uh, I've preached here in the morning services at Mobile, so it's good to be back. been traveling a lot, Utah and Wisconsin, and all the way to Georgia. It's very far away. Well, we are in passage, or we are in James, chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 this morning. And we have been walking through this big topic of faith and works. One of the more mysterious ways in which these things work together in our salvation to God's glory. Last week, we kind of asked the question, okay, with everything we know from Romans and the Apostle Paul's teaching, it's very adamant, faith is the only thing that saves you. It's the only thing that justifies you. Is it now the case that we're seeing a contradiction between James and Paul? Because now James is saying, well, no, there are works that are involved. So it seems at the surface. And Jack was very helpful in walking us through the way that Paul and James are both approaching the topic of justification last week. Paul is, to recap, dissecting salvation and identifying each part in it. He's picking one up and saying, you see, within salvation, this is justification, this is sanctification, and this is glorification, things that we talked a lot about through his letter of Romans. And Paul is speaking primarily to an audience who either had little knowledge of God's covenant with his people, so Gentiles, or were being taken in by a false gospel that said, in order for you to get God to love you, you have to do a bunch of works first, and then he'll love you, then he'll bless you, legalism. So Paul is combating legalism. James, though, on the other hand, he's picking up this multifaceted diamond that is salvation. He's looking at all the different angles, but he's saying this, in one word, is justification. He's talking about what ultimately happens, that the process of salvation ends with us being literally, ontologically, just and right and good, just like the Lord Jesus at the end of sanctification comes glorification where we are, as we see in Revelation, a spotless bride cleansed in the blood of Christ. And so James is picking this idea up and calling it justification. He is speaking primarily to an audience who were wrongly taught all their life that their good works are what keep them in the covenant, keep them saved. And then they hear this good news that Christ is the maintainer of one's covenant status. But they wrongly conclude that that means now works are unnecessary to the Christian life. He is combating lawlessness. The confusion lies in the way that Paul and James use one same word, justification. And I, I think I came up with an illustration perhaps uh, to help us understand this. I was in the Air Force uh, for six years. I got out as a staff sergeant. And in the enlisted ranks in the Air Force, most of the people are sergeants. There's three uh, ranks I want to talk about this morning to help us kind of uh, see perhaps, or an analogy, perhaps what James and Paul are using the same word but mean different things. In these ranks, you have three specific different types of sergeant. You have a staff sergeant, you have a technical sergeant, and you have a master sergeant. And so you're progressing through these ranks as your career goes on. Formally, they are staff, technical, and master sergeants. 
Informally, though, what would you call anyone wearing these ranks? Sergeant, right? So you can call them both Staff Sergeant so-and-so and Sergeant so-and-so. Depending on the situation, both are equally perfect. They're just perfectly fine, right? I think in a similar way, we see the same thing happening with James, and we see the same thing happening with Paul. James is being very informal, calling him sergeant. Paul saying, well, we need to look at the different ranks here. Where James is saying just straight up justification, Paul is wanting to draw our attention to what constitutes this ultimate justification, this ultimate salvation, these three parts. Essentially, Paul was fighting legalism, which is a misunderstanding of grace as insufficient, but James was fighting an actionless faith, a misunderstanding of grace as inanimate. That is why they use the words differently. Paul is fighting legalism, which is a misunderstanding of grace as insufficient. You have to do something in addition for grace to be efficient. And James is fighting actionless faith, static faith, faith that doesn't move. It's a misunderstanding of grace that is inanimate. So what Jack told us last week, I think is very helpful. Paul and James are actually fighting back-to-back. They're not facing each other, but they're back-to-back fighting different heresies. Paul is combating a cheap grace. James is combating an inactive grace. Paul is slapping our hands for doing good works for the wrong reasons. And James is slapping hands for concocting wrong reasons for not doing good works. You see? Both of them, though point to Christ as both our source, the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. It is the spirit of Christ in us that allows us to do good works. We've also seen that misunderstanding this point can lead to us falsely dividing James and Paul and having to pick one or the other, right? So we'll fall off on one side of the horse. We'll either agree with James and disagree with Paul, or we'll agree with Paul and we'll disagree with James. And one of the more famous examples that we see this in church history was Martin Luther, his famous comment that James is an epistle of straw. What does he mean when he says that James is an epistle of straw? He's drawing on 1 Corinthians where Paul is arguing that if you build a foundation of your teaching on something, it better be solid. He gives examples of precious metals like gold and silver, but he also gives other examples of foundation like wood and hay and straw. And he says, in the end, when judgment comes, there will be a fire. And if the foundation of your teaching was straw, guess what happens to it? It goes away and the building collapses. But if your foundation was gold, it will remain. And from this image, Martin Luther, looking at James, creating this false dichotomy, accused James of building his preaching on top of a straw foundation which is why he calls it an epistle of straw. Sure, it may have been edifying. It might have built people up. But in the end, it will be found wanting. It'll be found incomplete. Luther was not commenting on the inspiration of James. He believed that it should be where it is in Scripture, but our interpretation of it. In fact, Luther preached from James. But the way that he treated James is the same way that he would treat Leviticus 
or numbers. He would say, okay, cautiously, we need to look at this like it's the law and then point to Jesus with it. So he was very careful with it when he came in here. He didn't dismiss James, but he certainly categorized James as if he was an Old Testament prophet. But did he need to? Did he need to do this? If we're not careful, we'll fall into the same trap that Martin Luther did. Of course, he didn't need to do this. He needed to only understand to whom the letter was written and why the letter was written. If he had paid attention to that, then there would have been a greater synthesis between James and Paul that we clearly see in the text. James is not arguing for the cause of justification. He is arguing for the commodity of justification. James is not arguing for the cause of justification. What is it that makes you justified? Works? No, that's not what he's saying. He's arguing for the commodity. What is produced? What is our proof that your justification is sure, that your faith is valid? What is produced determines the validity of the producer. And James is saying, look to works the product to ensure that the producer, your faith, is actually true. So while Paul was grappling with the idea that the product creates the producer, James is grappling with the idea that the product is inconsequential to the producer. The product doesn't matter to the producer. And both of them are wrong. Let me give you an illustration. I think this is important. I've made a parable about the two novice vinters and their vineyards. I like to pronounce it vineyard. No, that was a mistake. I was just trying to cover up and it didn't work. A vinter, now I'm going to sound pretentious, a, vine, a vinter is somebody uh, who uh, tends to and creates their vineyards. Okay, so there are two vinters, and they both have a desire to have quality and choice vineyards. They want to produce good fruit in their vineyard. Both of them receive land, and now they get to put their desire into action. The first vinter, who is novice, looks at their inheritance and sees an open field. Thinks to themselves, man, what am I going to do? Where do I even start? I have no clue how to create this vineyard, but I desire to do so. And it just so happened that a master vineyard, we'll call him, I don't know, Paul, walks up and says, hey, I see that you have a desire to produce fruit. The vintner says, yes. And Paul says, okay, here's what you need to do. First, you need to till it. Then you need to plant grape seeds. And you need to create a structure for the vines to grow. Then you need to water it. Then you need to make sure animals don't come in here and eat the fruit before they ripen. And then you will see fruit. And in the future, there will be a great harvest, quality and choice fruit, you will see the product of this desire for, of yours to have a, a vineyard. Right? We can see the analogy. Paul, when he's writing about justification, is working with people who are new believers or need to be reminded, right? Faith is by, or salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone, your justification. You are given new desires. You want this vineyard to happen, and he shows you through discipleship how this vineyard is then planted and works. And eventually in glorification, you will see a harvest. 
Well, the second venter is different. The second venter is given land as an inheritance, and he begins to cultivate and create the vineyard, and he has one season that's successful, but then he doesn't do anything for the next season, and he doesn't do anything for the third season. And James, we'll call this guy, walks around and looks at the field, and the vintner says, are you not impressed with my vineyard? And James looks at the guy's vineyard and kind of gives like the cockeyed look because this is what he's looking at, a barren wasteland. (laughs) There's no fruit, my friend. And apparently you have let buffalo into your vineyard. And not just any buffalo. For the buffalo on the left side of the screen appears to be a Buffalo Bills fan which likely means he's from the city of Buffalo, New York. So he is a Buffalo Buffalo. <laughs> what are you doing, guy? And the second vintner's like, this is a really nice vineyard. And James is like, no, it's not. You haven't done anything to cultivate the fruit. Do you desire to be a master vintner? He says, yes. James says, then you actually have to do something. Let's start by getting rid of the Buffalo, right? And we need to retill this. We need a moment of sobriety to see that this is not matching the desire you say that you have. This is not matching the vision that you say you are giving. Essentially, James is saying, are you to be justified as a legitimate vintner? Then don't you think you should have some fruit to show for it? Doesn't it make sense that once you are saved by the finished work of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection by faith, that you being created to emulate him would actually emulate him? that you being created for his good works would actually see those works in your life. You see, James says, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Remember, to whom is James saying this? He's writing this to Jewish converts to Christianity. Imagine the joy that these Jewish converts would have had the first time they heard and accepted the gospel. All of their life, they were taught by Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes that since you are Jewish, you're saved. You descend from the lineage of Abraham. That means your ethnicity has saved you. Congratulations. Now, if you want to remain saved, well, you got to do good works. And Lord help you if you sin, because if you sin, you have to do extra good works in order to regain God's blessing and love and favor. It's the burden of the law that Paul talks about. But then... The good news comes. The but God news comes. And perhaps even through Paul, they heard this preaching. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 is a wonderful summary of this. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were by nature children of wrath. Think you're children of Abraham? No, you're children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You can feel the liberation of after a lifetime of being burdened by works of the law, now having someone tell you, no, Christ has done it for you. You no longer need works to remain saved. You don't need to work to get God's affection if you sin. Amen and amen, James would say to that. But they take it a step further. They say, okay, thus, if that's true, track with me, works are altogether useless in the economy of God because Jesus. James is like, wait, what? Repeat that last part. I don't don't think we're clear. And they keep going, right? They say, and now what we can say is, you have works, but I have faith. 
That means I'm super spiritual. I know that works don't matter anymore. And if you're working, it means you're an immature believer. Look how great I am. And James says, no, you totally missed it. You have forgotten the whole purpose of Christ's work for you. You were created to be an image and likeness to God, to be fruitful, to be blessed by God, and to do good things in his creation. And Christ went so far as to die and rise from death for you. And what you're saying now is that all of that doesn't matter. You have been enabled finally to realize the very purpose of your existence, and yet you don't do it. Do you not realize, James would say, echoing Paul, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How can you now say, you have works, but I have faith, and I don't need works. There's nothing to do. And just like that, they forget sanctification in our salvation. They ironically become slaves to a dead faith after being liberated from the dead faith that the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees were giving them. John the Baptist inaugurated the earthly ministry of Christ with a very sobering warning for everyone. Speaking specifically at this time to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Everyone who therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a stark warning, right? And Jesus repeats this exact same warning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There are two ways to not bear good fruit. Way number one is what the Sadducees and scribes and Pharisees were doing, the legalists. They were pretending to be good trees, but they were bearing bad fruit. They were saying, I'm a pear tree, but bananas were coming out, right? And everyone knows bananas are bad. There's a second way to not bear good fruit, and this is what James is concerned with. So if Paul is talking to these bad fruits, then James is talking to this tree. You can become a tree that says it's good and be barren, to not bear good fruit at all. So the really sobering, soul-piercing question we have to ask ourselves as believers is this. Do you feel an ax lying at the root of your stump? Do you feel an ax at your stump? There are many ways that we as believers can be drawn to not bear good fruit. I mean, it's called sin, right? And there are very, there are varied ways in which that sin prevents us from bearing good fruit. But I want to hone in on one this morning that is fairly common in our culture's context, in, in the church in America, but it's very unintuitive. And I think it can be hidden. But the moment I explain it, I think you'll, you'll track with me and you know what I'm saying. Many Christians in our culture are not bearing fruit for this reason. We assume that orthodoxy automatically leads to orthopraxy, right? What do I mean by that? What does orthodoxy mean? Orthodoxy means right belief, solid theology, good biblical understanding of X, Y, Z, right? The right beliefs that we ought to have as Bible-believing Christians. Orthopraxy then is right practices, 
a good understanding of missions, a solid understanding of evangelism, of discipleship, right? And actually doing these things. In other words, we assume that good theology automatically leads to good works. That if we have a good orthodoxy, we will automatically be led to an orthopraxy. If we have our theological house in order, then our good works will come automatically. Here's the problem. Does that happen? And we spend all of our time concerned and worried about getting our theological house in order, and we never put our beliefs into practice. I'll give me an illustration. Christian living, Christian discipleship, it's like uh, the sport of football. To play that game, you first have to have a desire to play football, right? Uh, if you don't have a desire to play football, why are you going to suit up and get on the field? So we need that desire first. Who puts, your desi who puts the desire into your heart to, to follow Christ? That's not something you would want to do on your own. No, the Holy Spirit comes. So once you have this desire to go out on the field and to play, the desire is there. The next thing you need to do, though, in order to play football is to know the rules, right? You can't just go onto the field, suit it up, and do whatever you want to. That's called Pop Warner football. And even though it was a lot of fun to play, uh, it doesn't make any sense, right? You also have to know the rules of the game really well. You have to know the right set of rules because there are a lot of competing sports in the world with different sets of rules. Some of the sports look really similar to football, like Mormonism is rugby, right? I mean, there's like a ball that's shaped like that, right? And uh, I don't know, they hit each other. So it's close enough, right? If you take rugby sports or rugby rules onto a football field, what's going to happen to you? You're not going to be able to play the game. Like you might be able to get a snap out, but that's about it, right? But it looks really similar, I know, but that's not, it's different rules. It's a different game. Islam is like baseball. There's a field and a ball, correct, but that's about where it ends, right? They're very different games. So if you bring baseball rules to football field, you're not going to be able to play. And Scientology is like Quidditch. They're just making it up. <laughs> is it sufficient to know the rules of the game and yet sit on the sideline? I have a desire to play. I know the rules. I know the right rules. Good. So you have a desire to live Christianly and you have a great orthodoxy. So why don't you get on the field? Oh, this is fine. This is enough right here. Don't you see that orthodoxy provides the framework in which our active faith is expressed? Orthodoxy, right belief, provides the framework in which we can express that belief. You are not saved by proper orthodoxy. If that shocks you for a second, let it settle in because it's true. You are not saved by proper orthodoxy. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And that faith that saved you leads to proper orthodoxy and proper orthopraxy. That faith that has already saved you leads to right belief and right understanding. And we act as though we're saved by our orthodoxy. The hidden Assumption is there's going to be some kind of theological quiz when we get to heaven. There's going to be an angel, right? 
He walks up to you and he's like, okay, define for me proper Trinitarianism. <laughs> right? You go on for like five minutes and he's like shaking his head. You think you're doing well? He's like, okay, that's modalism. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way it is, right? I've made this argument before and I'd like to bring it back up again. Who would pass the orthodoxy test and get into heaven if that was the only measure? Satan. He knows this better than you ever will. But what's the difference between you and him? He will not obey, can you? By the power of the Holy Spirit, yes. That's the difference. That's the difference. And so some people will say, I know Calvin really, really well. I read Spurgeon all the time. I follow in the footsteps of MacArthur and Grudem and Chandler, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's good. Barely a day goes by where I do not consult the wisdom of people to whom the Holy Spirit has given keen insight that I will never have. But for those who make known that they follow Calvin and Spurgeon and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera, do you also and more so make known your actions that you follow Christ into the wilderness to pray to the Father? That you follow Christ in his example of discipling men and women who are the future of our faith? And do you also make known your actions more so that you follow Christ to the pool of Bethsaida and the villages of Samaria to minister to those who the world has cast aside and oppressed, but to whom God is calling himself? If not, then what's the point of knowing the rules of the game if you're not going to play? What is the point of knowing which rules are right if you're not going to play? Christianity is not a spectator sport. The only people in the stands are people who have already played. They are the cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. Do you not see that your favorite theologians are positional coaches on the sideline begging you to suit up and get on the field and take their advice and put it into practice? And yet you would remain on the sidelines and debate the usefulness and the validity of the NFL's new changes to rules. The Lord Jesus is not looking for experts in Christian theology who don't put it into practice. He found a ton of those types of people in the gospel. Priests and Levites, today we would call them theologically solid dudes. And they passed by injured men on the side of the road until a good Samaritan came and stopped. Until someone outside of the faith community picked up what people on the inside of the faith community neglected. The Lord Jesus is looking for the kinds of people whose orthodoxy leads them to orthopraxy. So if you've read more chapters on systematic theology than you have shared gospel with unbelievers, you're missing the point. If you've listened to more podcasts about the Bible than you have alleviating oppression to those who are poor in spirit, you're wrong. And we need to repent. I think we've made it into an either or. You're either really up to snuff on orthodoxy or you're really up to snuff on orthopraxy. But the problem is what inevitably happens. Those who are up to snuff on orthodoxy know know what is right to do and don't do it. And those who are like, no, we need to do, do, do. They do, but they don't do it for the right reason. Or they go off the, the deep end, theologically speaking, and lose the reason that they're doing any good works at all. It's not an either or, it's a both and situation. And my fear is that specifically in our context, we've chosen the the form over the latter. We've chosen orthodoxy over orthopraxy. But James is saying, don't, you have to have both. 
And he gives us yet another example of somebody whose orthodoxy led her to orthopraxy and who prioritized her actions in a way that based on her faith brought honor to God and saved her. Speaking of Abraham's justification, in context, James continues in verse 25 and he says, and in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Who's Rahab? And what's her story? You can find Rahab's story in Joshua chapter two, but I actually think her story starts a lot earlier than that. It starts with the exodus of Israel from Egypt. God chooses Moses. And he comes to Moses and says, look, I'm Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the fathers that you descend from. And I made a promise to them and to their offspring. And that promise includes a land called Canaan. And I've heard the groaning of my people in Egypt. So here's what I'm going to do. Exodus 6, 7 through 8. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Stay true to my promises. Well, what happens next? We know the story. He stays true to his promises. Miraculously gets them out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, they go through it. That story must have made the nightly news, if not turned it on Twitter. He blessed them, gave them covenant law in that order, by the way. Go back and read. First, he blesses them and then he gives them the law. And he led them through the wilderness and he gave them victories against all odds when powerful enemies were trying to destroy them like the Amorites. And finally, after many years of wandering in the desert, they arrive at the shores of the Jordan River. Moses dies, Joshua takes command. God says, now's the time for you to take possession of Canaan, this land that I promised to you. He goes to Joshua, God does. He says, be strong and courageous. Joshua, like a good leader, turns to his people and says, be strong and courageous. And what's the first strong and courageous thing that the people do? They send two spies in there just to make sure. It's uh, okay before we go, right? It's a strong and courageous thing they do. They spy out the land. Well, these spies were not very good. They go into Jericho and the king finds out about it. And he's beginning to hunt them down. Enter Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. She lives in the city wall. That's an important detail because it means she's poor. She doesn't have a lot of money. She lives in the slums. She can only afford three walls of her house, so she's got to move her house up against somebody else's wall, right? And what's the first thing that goes under when an invading army comes to your city? It's the first thing that's destroyed. The wall. So there goes your house and your possessions and everything gone, right? You want to live on the inside of the city, not the outside. So she's a foreigner, She's a prostitute. She lives in the slums. She pulls the spies aside and she hides them. And the king's men come and they ask her, hey, where are they? We heard you knew where they are. And she says in Joshua 2, 4 through 6, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. And they take the bait and they go off on a wild goose chase. Rahab then speaks to the spies from Israel. In Joshua 2, 9 through 13, she goes up the stairs to speak to these two spies that she's hiding. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That's one of the most important statements in Rahab's story. I know 
that the Lord has given you this land. Think about that. A foreign prostitute knows by her faith who God is, who God's people are, and what God promised his people. She has the same faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Joshua, but she's a Canaanite prostitute. She continues, and the fear of you has fallen upon us. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to those two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. She's not just saying like, your God apparently is a lot better than our God. She's saying like, my God's not even a thing. Your God is the God of heavens and earth, the God of everything. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, by that God that I have placed my faith in, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with me. Talk about an incredible faith that Rahab has. She is now betraying all of her people to latch on to what God is doing. The men agree. They sneak out through a window and they head back to Joshua. We know the rest of the story. They come. They march around the walls. The walls collapse by God's power. Jericho falls and a battle ensues. And at the end of Joshua chapter six, it says, but Rahab the prostitute and the father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. That's why James is bringing her up. She had faith that led to action. And because that faith, which was proved by her action, was true, she was saved. She is bringing Rahab, or James is bringing Rahab up to contrast her against Abraham to highlight similarities between both of them. Think about it. Abraham was not originally a Jew. He wasn't originally Hebrew. There was no Hebrews or there was no Jews before Abraham. He was a Chaldean, a Gentile, a foreigner. And he was the first Gentile man to convert to faith to God after the flood. And through his lineage comes King David and the Lord Jesus. Everybody knows that who's reading James's letter. But Rahab is like Abraham in that she's also a Gentile, a Canaanite. She's the first Gentile woman to convert by faith to God after the establishment of Israel, as far as we know. And through her lineage, King David came, and so also the Lord Jesus. Rahab is the mother of Boaz, who we studied about in Ruth recently. And Boaz is the grandpa of David. And Christ comes through David's line. There's a Canaanite prostitute in Jesus' lineage. Therefore, we can hear the undercurrent in James' letter, stop showing favoritism. He's already told us that earlier in the letter, right? But now he's underlining it. God has always and always will look at people's hearts and their faith and not the color of their skin when it comes to salvation. So you should too. You should look to their hearts and look to their faith and not what they look like on the outside. Another reason that Rahab is being contrasted to Abraham here is actually to show differences. Abraham was the first male Hebrew who was saved by an act of faith. They would have all been on board with that. But 
almost in an exact opposite, Rahab is a female, not a male, foreigner, not Hebrew, prostitute, certainly not patriarch, who was also saved by an active faith. Did you see that? The playing field is equal. It doesn't matter if you're a male Hebrew patriarch or foreign female prostitute. We're all equal when it comes to who can receive God's blessing by an active faith. So stop looking to those things too. But I think most importantly, James is trying to show us that once more, as we saw in Abraham already, faith in God should lead to concrete action. Abraham's faith led to concrete action, his offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Rahab's faith led to concrete action, her hiding the spies and making it so that Israel could come and receive the promise that God had given them. Rahab trusted that God is a God who redeems. I've heard this story of what God did to the Egyptians for you. He redeemed you. He is a God who judges. I also heard what happened when they tried to pursue you in the Red Sea. He judged them. And I've also heard about those two kings from the Amorites. He judged them. And third, God is a God who shows compassion for those who place their faith in them. Rahab says, I have that faith. I am placing it in him. Here's the proof positive. I'm on your side. I am going to forsake everything about my culture and people and ethnicity. I want to be a part of what God is doing. And God honors it. Rahab's faith in God would not have saved her if she didn't act. We wouldn't even know of Rahab if she would have sat on the sidelines. If she would have believed all those things at first, but then didn't take action. It would have been a dead faith. And James would say, not a faith at all. It wasn't a real faith. It was a pseudo faith. But hers was genuine because it was proved. With James, the author of Hebrews says essentially the same thing. Hebrews 11.31, by faith first, by faith, you must have faith first, right? By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given, or she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. There you see the, the progression. True faith always leads to action. By faith led to a because. So the question, naturally, we have to ask ourselves, is super easy, but really hard, does your faith move? It should, James has already warned us in the beginning of the chapter, be a doer of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Because if you say you have a faith and there's no fruit to show for it, and there's no good works to show for it, you're probably deceiving yourself. And James hammers home this point with an analogy, for as the, or a metaphor, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Just as if the spirit left a body and the body would collapse, faith apart from works is dead. And here then is James' ultimate point. You are not saved by the kind of faith that sits. You are saved by the kind of faith that moves, the kind of faith that leads to good works. You are saved by the kind of faith that gives you both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, not one or the other. Are you a Rahab who doesn't move? 
Are we Rahabs who don't move? Is our faith based on orthodoxy alone that is altogether unfamiliar with what it actually means to play the game, to do good works in God's kingdom? Calvin eloquently summarizes this so well that I love to bring it up over and again. When he says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. It's therefore faith alone with, that justifies, by faith Rahab, the prostitute, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone, because she had given welcome to the spies. Christ is calling us to something much better than a life of pseudo-faith that eventually leads to spiritual death, the chopping down of a tree and throwing into fire. As we watch vines grow and overtake God's creation. Don't you know that by faith alone, you were adopted into a family that does awesome things? You were a part of one family, but now you're part of a new family. And as a part of the new family, you do what the new family does. And here's some of the awesome things that we do in the new family. We participate with Christ in his work of making all things new by proclaiming the gospel and discipling people. We do awesome things like bring good news to the outcast and the unloved and the burdened and confused and deceived and angry and hurt and oppressed. We do awesome things like take the unbreakable battering ram of truth to the very gates of hell itself so that Christ's church will prevail over the kingdom of darkness. You get to participate in that. Why do you want to sit on the sidelines? Up, let us move. Let us be a church who is active, not because we're trying to gain something, but because we already have. Let us be a church that never feels the ax at the foot of our stump because we're too busy advancing the kingdom of God in his truth and for his glory, that we would be a people that love both truth and good works so that our faith would be proven true and glorify God. Because as Paul tells us, we are his workmanship created for good works. To enjoy him forever, to experience his blessing, to see his kingdom grow, and to give him glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult word to hear, but we know that through the inspiration of Scripture, it is profitable for correction and reproof. Let us take this correction and reproof and put it into action, knowing that you don't correct or reproof for people you don't love, but you discipline only those who you love and want to see conform more to the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that loves both your truth and the spurring on an action of your works, that we would emulate Christ, who both perfectly knew your truth and perfectly did your good works. Let us be his hands and feet in this world as we are described as the body of Christ. And as we have seen in his life in the Gospels, he moved. Lord, prove our faith through the fruit that it produces so that we may have more confidence in the blessing that you have given us and more joy in participating in the exercise and the work that you are doing in the world. 
Fill us with your Holy Spirit because it's by his power and his alone that we do this. And let us always do our good works to the glory of your name and not ours. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.